Take your Bible with me this morning, if you will, and open to the book of Acts, chapter 16. We do bring to a close today this week-long emphasis on world missions. We'll talk about it at other times through the course of this missions year, but this is the week we focus on it and give the entire week to it. I'm going to be reading at the end of chapter 15, verses 40 and 41, down into chapter 16 in just a few moments. And so find your place there in your Bible, if you will. Acts chapter 15, verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. In other words, now Paul and Silas are bringing on an additional team member by the name of Timothy. Down to verse 6, if you will. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had gone to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were there, and we were staying in that city for some days. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that uh, you will use me today as I make an appeal to your people, to your church. Some that are watching us, uh, they are either live streaming or watching by television. Others that are here in this service. But as they hear this appeal today, I pray that you'll move their hearts to join us in this cause of missions. Lord, I cannot move their hearts, but you can. I cannot make them see what is needed in the world, but you can. And I pray, Lord, that you'll open our eyes to see. Lord, as Americans, we live in the most privileged and blessed land on the face of the planet. Lord, there are places around the world that don't have a gospel witness. And we have a responsibility to get the gospel to those places. Help us to see that today, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Every sermon I deliver begins with some kind of an introduction. Usually it's a story or maybe a series of questions, something to draw you into the message. Well, today's introduction is going to be a little bit different because I'm just going to tell you what I'm doing from the very beginning, and I'm going to tell you about what I call the big ask, A-S-K, the big ask. I've come to ask you for something today very, very specific, and I want you to know that from the very beginning. If you were expecting something different, you'll be disappointed because that's what I'm going to be doing throughout the course of this message and trying to drive home the importance of you joining with us in this venture that we call Faith Promise Missions. That is our missions outreach, our world missions outreach. That is where we give above our tithes, we give offerings for the sake of helping men and women who are called of God to take the gospel to places where we cannot go. I'm not asking anything for myself. I get nothing in return for anything you give through Faith Promise Missions. Our church and the ministries of our church are not carried on by the work of Faith Promise Missions. They are carried on by the tithes of our people, people who take a tenth of their income and they give it back to the local church for the ongoing of a ministry here in the tri-state to reach the tri-state and really a hundred-mile radius of the tri-state at least a 100-mile radius by way of the television and 
far beyond that by way of the, the, of the internet. What I'm talking about is giving money to a mission that takes the gospel of Jesus Christ thousands of miles away. Thousands upon thousands of miles away. So I'm not asking for me. I'm not asking for what we're doing here on this ridge. I'm asking you to help us touch the world from this ridge. A small city, a small town, on a ridge, we as a people can change this world if we'll join together and we'll work as one. We can get the gospel to people who so desperately need to hear the gospel. So from the very beginning, I want you to know I'm talking about the big ask. I'm asking you to join us today, and I'll tell you how to do that in just a few minutes. The passage of Scripture that I've read to you is commonly referred to as the Macedonian call. If you're a missionary, you've heard this passage preached probably a hundred times, or you've preached it. If you haven't heard this passage preached, you're either new to the church or you're not a missionary, because this is one of the classic passages related to missions. And I want us to spend a few minutes here today and I want to give you four specific points related to this passage as I ask you to join us in this venture of world missions, to join your heart and your hands with ours to help us take the gospel further than we've ever taken it before. And if we're going to be successful at this mission, there are four things that are going to be required of us. To be successful, first of all, we have to recognize the urgent need we have to recognize the urgent need. I don't know if you noticed it a few minutes ago, but as I was reading through those verses of Scripture, urgency is written all over the words of that passage. If you didn't see it, go back and read it again this afternoon. Urgency is written all over the verses of that passage. You see that urgency in how God is directing and redirecting Paul and his team as they're on this second missionary journey. They start heading north, and then they begin to veer toward the west, and they get to a certain spot, and God says, no, you can't go beyond there. They continue going north, a little bit northwest, until they get to a northern place, and God says, no, you can't go there either, Bithynia. So they go west toward the sea. They even go a little southwest until they get to the port city of Troas. And when you're looking at these redirections of God, God moving these men, this team, from one place to another, what you're looking at is God impressing upon us the urgency of the task. No, Paul, there is a place I need you to be, and I need you to be there now. You can't go there, you can't go there, you've got to go there. You see the urgency as well in this Macedonian call. A man comes to the Apostle Paul in a vision in the night. And if you remember the word, it was the word pleading. He stood and he pleaded. He didn't just ask, he pleaded. He said, come over and help us. Come over and help us. And you can sense the urgency in even the words of this Macedonian man. And maybe something that you won't recognize unless I point it out to you is the urgency that's revealed to us in the quickness of their trip that takes them from Troas over to Neapolis, the port city, just a short distance from Philippi. If you remember, as we read through there, it took them two days to get there. To cross the sea, it took them two days to get there. But a few chapters later, in chapter 20, you don't need to turn there, they're now leaving that port city in Macedonia, and they're headed back to Troas. And it says, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. It took them two days to get there. It takes them five days to get back. Somebody says, well, that's just because of the prevailing winds at the time. 
probably. But let me remind you about the power behind the prevailing winds. The one who made sure that the prevailing winds were moving in the direction they needed to move. Why? Because there is a sense of urgency that's written all over this passage. An urgency that I'm going to desperately try to get you to see and desperately try to get you to understand. In America, we have churches on top of churches. We have Christian television stations. We have Christian radio stations. We have all kinds of outreaches, Christian outreaches to men and women whose lives are broken. But do you realize that there are parts of our world today who've never even once heard the name of Jesus Christ? They don't even have a Bible in their own heart language. Nobody has ever come to them as a missionary and explained to them the way of salvation. And imagine for a moment, if you or I had been born in one of those places and you were headed toward an eternity that you didn't know what awaited you on the other side, you would have a sense of urgency if you understood it all the consequences of dying in your sin, you would have a sense of urgency. As a matter of fact, I want to put for you on the screen what is today the world population. More than 8 billion people. Can you say that number with me? 8 billion people. You see how many are being born? This is as I speak. How many people are being born do you see how many people are dying as I speak? And please understand that as you look at that, the number of people coming into this world exceeds the number that are going out of this world. So the mission just grows bigger all the time because people are being born faster than people are dying. When you look at that and you see those statistics, does it not scream to us the urgency of getting the gospel to people who so desperately need to hear it? Have we forgotten that hell is real? It's not just a figment of our imagination. It's not just some way to control people by keeping them in fear. It is the reality for every person who does not know Jesus Christ who goes into eternity. Do we not remember that Jesus is coming? Even before death, Jesus could come, and everyone who has not trusted in Christ would be left behind to face the terrible seven years of tribulation that will follow. Do we not remember the words of Jesus when he said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The harvest is ready, and the harvest is ready now. Have we forgotten that people are lost? Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. They don't know where to find the answers. They don't know where to turn. They don't even understand the emptiness that's within them. They have no concept of what's coming after death. They only know that something is missing out of life. And do you remember what Paul says, that now is the time? Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Not a year from now, not two years from now, not 10 years, not the next generation. As a matter of fact, my generation is responsible for reaching my generation. The ones coming behind me are responsible for reaching their generation. And the ones that are just growing up as children in our households are responsible for reaching their generation. There is an urgency. People are coming into this world and going out of this world every second Multiple people every second. And most of them have no access to the gospel. Do you know what's 800 miles, 800,000 miles long? Do you know what's 800,000 miles long? Reaches around the earth more than 30 times and grows at a minimum of 20 miles longer every day? Do you know the answer? It's the line of people 
who are without Jesus Christ. Think about that. 800,000 miles long, reaches around the earth 30 times, grows at a minimum of 20 miles longer every day. And we fuss about whether we've got an Android or an iPhone, whether we're going to get Dish TV or whether we're going to have cable TV or whether we're going to get YouTube TV. We complain about whether the seats are comfortable, the sermons are too long, you have to come in out of the rain or have to get out of your car and walk in through the rain. We complain about the food we eat. We complain about all of these things that don't really matter a whole lot when you stop and you think about the number of people that don't even know who Jesus is. Can you sense the urgency? Can you feel the desperation of men and women around the world? Do you recognize, recognize the need that they have? Can you hear the silent call that's coming to us? Come over and help us. Come over and help us. Some of us won't walk across the street to talk to our neighbor about Jesus Christ. We've been living in the same neighborhoods for years and have never spoken to those that are right there under our feet about Jesus Christ. And yet there are millions of people that desperately need us to come over and help them. And the only help that we can provide them, the greatest help that we can provide them, is the help of bringing them the gospel. Some time ago, a man had his family at a place called Oceans of Fun. It's a water park indoor outdoor water park place in Kansas City after spending some time going down the water slides with his kids they all decided that they were going to relax a little while in the wave pool they'd gotten about two-thirds of the way down into the wave pool when the father noticed something was lying on the bottom of the pool that looked exactly like a little child he looked at the man that was closest to the object to see if he might be teaching one of his children how to swim or how to dive under the water, but he didn't even seem to notice the object that was right there very close to him. This father quickly looked around to identify each of his children that he knew where each of them were, and then he dove into the waters and he lunged toward the object at the bottom of the pool. And as he reached down about five feet, he grabbed what he thought was a child by the arm. He pulled it to the surface. And once he had it above the water, he realized that it was actually a rubber mannequin of a child. And he didn't know what to think. Was somebody playing a cruel joke on him? Were the lifeguards doing some kind of a test? I mean, he didn't know. All he knew was that at that moment he had to do something to save what he thought was a child that was drowning, right? If you've ever been in a situation like that where somebody was in need and you just naturally felt the call to go and help with that need, a number of years ago, Mary and I were visiting our family outside of Atlanta at Christmas time. It was cold. A lot of people had fires in their fireplaces. And we were driving away from my sister's house and headed back to another place we were going. And as we were going, you have to remember some of these places where my sister's in a subdivision, but some of these places are out on five or six or eight or ten acres of property, and the houses sit way back off the road, uh, lots of property that surrounds them. But as we passed one particular house, out of the chimney of the house, there were flames that were leaping out of the chimney. And we saw it as we passed by. And we asked each other, what should we do? And we turned around and I drove down that long driveway up to that house. And I went to the door and I knocked on the door because I didn't know exactly what was going on and how much danger they were in. And it was an elderly couple which today would be my age, I suppose. But it was a, an elderly couple that came to the door, and I explained to them what I saw and showed them what was going on. I mean, when you see something or you know something that's a great need, what do you do? Do you just ride by it? 
Aren't you moved to do something about it? I mean, if you've ever been in a situation like that where someone's in desperate need of help or crying out for help, it's just natural for you to want to do something in that moment. And do you realize that there are actually records of people who have ripped doors off their hinges or they've lifted seemingly impossible weights in a time of emergency in order to save someone? And yet somehow in modern America, the most blessed land on the face of the earth, and we're only worried about the petty things, Did you see what they did on Facebook? Did you see what she said on Facebook or on social media? And somehow we miss the cry of those that are so desperate for the gospel and we have no sense of urgency about reaching them. As Paul was possibly sleeping, he might have been awake. But as Paul was going through that particular night, he heard a call from a desperate man. It was the Macedonian man, and he was crying out, and he was begging him. He was pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And Paul and his team responded. How will we respond? How will we respond to this enormous need of the gospel around the earth. Secondly, if we're going to be successful, and we will be successful at this mission if we offer an obedient response. The urgency of this passage called for the obedience of God's servants. Do you remember the word that was used here? After this vision was given to Paul, it says immediately, immediately. There was no delay. There was no debate about it. They were ready to travel. They were ready to make their way to Troas, to the port of Troas, to get across to where Macedonia was found so that they could get ultimately to a city called Philippi. They were ready to go because they knew the urgency. They were moved to obedience. And do you understand that when God calls us to do something and he calls us to obedience, that he's calling us to something significant? Dr. Tom Constable is now retired, but is a longtime seminary professor at Dallas Theological Seminary writing about this passage, says, because of Paul's obedience at this point, the gospel went westward, and ultimately Europe and the Western world were evangelized. He goes on, Christian response to the call of God is never a trivial thing. Indeed, as in this instance, he says, great issues and untold blessings may depend on it. When you look at this particular mission that God has called Paul and his team to undertake, do you see the significance of this occasion in history? Do you see the significance? Do you see that this is a watershed moment in history? This region of Macedonia is what we would call today modern-day Greece. And God is sending Paul to the cities where Alexander the Great once ruled to the area where Plato and Socrates had lived, to where you can find Mount Olympus if you go to that place. In other words, this direction for the Apostle Paul marks for the gospel of Christ a matter of going to a region that ensures, now listen, it ensures that the gospel will ultimately get to Europe and that Europe will become the center of Christianity in that day. What if Paul or Silas or Timothy or Luke had said, nothing doing, we're not going? Do you realize that because the Apostle Paul and his team were obedient to God, recognizing the urgency that was before them, that you and I sit here today? We know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior because the gospel went to Europe and from Europe to America, and all of us are here and blessed because the Apostle Paul obeyed what God told him to do. 
This mission that God's called us to is a mission of urgency, and it requires, it doesn't just ask, it requires that we be obedient. We argue about where we can get the cheapest tickets to the latest concert. When we have missionaries, did you see the house? You wouldn't live in it. We argue about how expensive or how nice the meal is. They're eating off and from the ground, the, the very ground itself, growing it themselves. Do, do you understand what I'm saying to you? There is an urgency that requires an obedience. That means that there's some of you that God is calling. If he's not calling you to the mission field, he's calling you to ministry like I'm in, full-time vocational ministry like our other pastors in. He's calling you to that ministry. He's calling you to that ministry. He's calling you to that mission because there's an urgency. There's got to be an obedience that comes. And just imagine with me for a moment after the vision of that night. Paul wakes up the next morning and he probably says to his traveling companions something like this. Hey, guys. Pack up your bags. And I can imagine one of them saying, well, where are we going to go, Paul? And he answers them back, and he says, we're going to get on a ship. We're going to cross the sea over to Macedonia because God gave me a vision of people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's where God wants us to go. And you read it. It says, immediately. not after begging. It says immediately, without a moment of hesitation, they began moving in that direction. Can you see them scurrying around, trying to get everything together, putting it all together? Because they're ready to go. We've got to move quickly. We've got to get there. This urgency requires an obedience. We've got to get there. We've got to get the gospel to these people in Macedonia. Can I just stop for a moment and tell you that when you seem to be confused about what's next and you're perplexed about not knowing what to do. Do you know that if you demonstrate before God an obedient heart that God will show you what's next? The problem with most of us, with me sometimes, is, Lord, I want you to show me, but I want you to show me before I make up my mind. But that wasn't the attitude of Paul and Silas or Timothy or Luke. When they saw the urgency of the mission, they were moved to obedience to God. And immediately, without a moment of hesitation, they began making their way. As Woodrow Kroll, the voice of Back to the Bible for some 20 or so years, once said, when God closes a door, he always opens a window. God had closed a number of doors, moving them where he needed them to be, but now he was opening a window of opportunity for them to step through because what God wants from us is obedience to go when he calls. Listen to the obedience of a missionary, a missionary wife. She writes, The day of trouble came for our family on June 18th. Six months after arriving in Mexico as missionaries, my husband, my oldest daughter, and two young summer missionaries drowned in the waters of one of the beaches. As I contemplated the body of my 10-year-old daughter, I felt my strength leave. As God made his presence real on that beach that day, not only I, but also my children, that is the surviving ones, the surviving summer missionaries and the crowd that witnessed our tragedy saw him too. My children and now, my children and I now have returned to Mexico as missionaries. Wait a minute, God didn't just call him, God called her, right? My children and I now return, have returned to Mexico as missionaries. One of the summer missionaries now works with our agency, and the other one is preparing to become a missionary, and many from the crowd that day are now Christians. And I couldn't help but think about the Aka, the Aka Five in Ecuador trying to reach the Aka Indians 
And they were killed by the Aka Indians, but their families, some of the members of their families later went back. And some of them that were saved were even some of the ones who had killed their husbands and fathers. I mean, if God calls you to something, you go to do what God calls you to do if it costs you no matter what it costs you. That's obedience. And we have to offer an obedient response if we're going to be successful in this mission. But thirdly, we can be successful at this mission if we maintain a clear mission. What does Paul say that he's going to Macedonia to do? He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to preach the gospel. He's not going to do social work. He's probably going to help feed some. He'll probably have to help some with clothing and other kinds of items. But that's not his primary work. His primary work is the work of preaching the gospel. The one message, the only message that can change a sinner's heart is the good news about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. That's why you've got to tell your neighbor. That's why you've got to tell your family members. That's why you've got to tell your friends. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And I understand you may be challenged with your hearing. He's not talking about just with your physical ears, but somebody has got to communicate the gospel, whether it's written or it's in Braille or it's in sign language or it's so it's audible so that you can hear it. Somebody has got to give them the gospel. That's our primary task. People all the time, please, I'm expressing a little frustration, want to pull me into every possible thing that seemingly is a good thing to be involved in, but pulls us away from what is our primary task. The task of the proclamation of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 5, where we've been studying and we'll go back to studying next week, Paul came to the Corinthians and he says, I delivered to you first of all. What was it first of all that he delivered? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand people's greatest need in the world today is to hear the good news of Jesus? It's the greatest news that they have because only the gospel can set them free from the sins that hold them in bondage. I'm going to say something and I'm going to make some of you angry with me. You can't counsel or drug people out of their bondage to sin. Only Jesus can set people free from their sins. And long after the counseling has failed and the drugs have failed, Jesus still does the miracle of salvation that changes people's lives. You ever heard of Oscar night? Yeah, not that one. That one's disgusting as far as I'm concerned. You ever heard of Oscar night? Well, let me tell you the story about a man named Oscar Cervantes. This is in California. He has a dramatic example of Christ's power to transform lives. As a child, Oscar began to get into trouble. Then as he got older, he ended up being jailed 17 different times for various crimes. Some of them were brutal crimes. And I'll not tell you what they were. Prison psychiatrists said that he was beyond help, but they were wrong. During an interval of freedom, Oscar met an elderly man who told him about Jesus, and he placed his trust in Christ and was changed into a kind and caring man. Sometime after that, he started a prison ministry. Chaplain H.C. Warwick describes it this way. The third Saturday night of each month is Oscar night. I like that. The third Saturday night of each month is Oscar night at Soledad Prison. That's in California. 
Inmates come to hear Oscar, and they sing gospel songs with fervor. They sit intently for over two hours. They come freely to the chapel altar. What professionals had failed to do for Oscar in years of counseling, Christ did in a moment of conversion. Are you saying, Pastor, we don't need counselors and we don't need medications? That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just telling you that men and women, according to Romans chapter 6, are slaves to sin. And the only one who can set them free from their slavery to sin is Jesus Christ. And that's why we take the gospel. Others will listen to them and counsel them. Others may have to prescribe medications for them. But we bring to them the one message that can set them free from the slavery that they have to their sinfulness. Only Jesus can do that and only the gospel because people's greatest need is to hear the gospel. I'm not against benevolent ministries. We give large sums of money to help with clothing and feeding people because we believe in doing that. But you do that apart from the gospel as an end in itself, you're no longer fulfilling what God left the church here to do. We can be successful, number four, if we cooperate in a joint effort. So here comes the ask. We can be successful at this mission if we cooperate in a joint effort. Apparently, Paul shares this vision with the other men who are traveling with him, and they collectively agree that it's God's will for them to go to Macedonia. You say, why do you say collectively? Why wouldn't they just do what Paul told them to do? Well, he uses the word concluding. Do you see it in the phrase? Concluding. It's in the plural. The other thing for you to notice as you read down through the rest of Acts 16 is the plural pronouns, we and us, we and us. This is one of those sections where Luke has actually joined with the apostle Paul and is traveling with him. There's four or five times in the book of Acts where Paul is actually joined by Luke and Luke is on the trip with them. And this is one of those occasions. Luke has joined with Paul and Timothy and Silas and Paul tells them about this vision and they all together collectively conclude, this is God's will, this is what he wants us to do and they go together. Can I just tell you that the work of God is so much better when you have others along to help. They used to say it in business somewhere, you know, many hands make for light work. When everybody's contributing and everybody's participating, whether it's giving tithes to a local ministry trying to reach a hundred mile radius or whether it's giving to a missions program, an offering called Faith Promise, it's a means of us coming together and all of us collectively doing our very best because the reality is if we work together, we can do more than any one of us can do on our own. And, and understand something. You can take on missionaries individually. Some of you do, and I commend you for that. But when you give collectively to the faith promise offering of the church, you're, not, you're, you're now not just involved in the life of one missionary, you're involved in the life of nearly 80 missionaries. Do you see the collective value? Do you see the collective investment? We need to work together. Everybody needs to come on board, from the youngest amongst us to the oldest of us. Well, I'm on a fixed income. This is a faith promise. You're asking God, Lord, what would you want to give through me beyond my tithes? What would you want to give to me that I can trust you to provide for me? Sometimes he provides through better stewardship of what you already have. Sometimes he provides in miraculous ways. But Mary and I have discovered since even before we were married that when you commit to giving to God, you can never outgive God. That God always returns it to you and he multiplies it to you. It's amazing. We need to help each other. We need to help these missionaries. And collectively, we can do more than us doing it individually can do. You remember when Jesus was teaching those crowds that had gathered and 
in Luke chapter 5. The disciples were working on their nets. They were cleaning them and mending them. And the crowd got so, so great that Jesus had to step into one of the fishing boats and he had to have Peter to push out from the sea. He sat down and he continued teaching them. But when he had finished, you know what he told Peter to do? He said, Peter, put down your nets. And Peter, Peter objected like, you know, Peter's always speaking out sometimes before he thinks. And he objected. Lord, put down the nets. We fished all night long and we didn't hardly catch anything. We didn't catch anything, Lord. Put down your nets. It's daytime. Put down your nets. But he said, Lord, because you said do it, I'm going to put the nets down. And you remember what happens next? There were so many fish that were caught in the nets that they couldn't drag them in. So he starts doing what? He starts calling the other boats in the water. Hey, guys, come help us. Hey, guys, come over here. Help us. We need your help. Come on over here. And they all together, working together, pulled in this great catch of fish. When you work together, I mean, you can do so much more. Or think about the paralytic who couldn't get to Jesus. You remember the story? It's found in Mark 2 and Luke 5 as well. Remember that story? He had four friends. One probably couldn't have gotten this man to Jesus. Two might have gotten him. Three would have been a little easier. But with a man on all four corners of the cot, they were able to carry their paralytic friend to Jesus. And when they get there, what happens? The crowd is so great, they can't get him in before Jesus. So they climb up on the rooftop and they break up the roof, whether it's thatch or whether it's uh, you know, the dried mud. They, they, they break up the roof and they let the man down and Jesus heals the man. They worked together. They worked together. And that's the way we have to do missions. That's what Romans chapter 10 is talking about. Do you remember what Romans 10 says? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Do you see the, the, the collective effort? There's somebody who's willing to go. There's people that are willing to help. And together, you're working together to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have to come together in a collective effort, a joint effort in this cause of missions to make the greatest impact we can make. And listen to me. Do you realize that when you invest in missions, that it accrues back to you fruit that abounds? Paul writes a letter later on back to Philippi, the city of Macedonia. He says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid, that's money, once and again for my necessities. Now listen to what he says. Not that I seek the gift. I mean, God's going to provide for me one way or the other, and I wasn't begging you for anything. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. In other words, when you give and you're helping a missionary like Paul do the work that God's given him to do, it's not Paul begging for money, poor-mouthing for money. It's the Apostle Paul saying, the good that comes out of that is the fruit that comes back to you, the rewards that come back to you as a result of doing so. And think about it. If you're supporting one missionary, which I hope you'll continue to do if you're already doing, you get fruit back from one missionary. But if you become a part of a team and you help all of us, you're becoming a part of some 80 missionaries, and now you're getting fruit back from 80 different missionaries in missionary projects. I don't know about you. That sounds like a pretty good investment to me. I'm not real. I, don't, I know nothing about the stock market. I, I came into this world with nothing, and I'll go out of this world with nothing because I don't have anything now. I don't know anything about money, but I know when there's a good in, uh, the sound of a good investment, right? And besides, the money I want, the reward I want, isn't what you can get and put in the bank. What I want is what's laid up in store in heaven. 
that moth and rust and all the other things, thieves can't break through and steal, that's the reward I long to have. I was watching the Weather Channel a couple of weeks ago. That generally means that I'm old. (laughs) You say, why in the world would you watch the Weather Channel? Because when you get into our age bracket, the changing weather affects how you feel every single day. They also have a lot of documentaries that I enjoy watching. And I was watching one particular documentary. It's one of the shows where they talk about some catastrophe that occurs and how weather impacted it. And they go through and they try to figure out, was it this or was it that or was it this or was it that? Until they come to a final conclusion. On August the 14th, 2018, at 11.36 a.m. in the northern city of Italy called Genoa, A portion of a bridge collapsed, taking 30 cars and trucks down to the deep valley below, killing 45 people. This four-lane bridge was built in the 60s and was known at the time as a marvel of engineering. The total bridge spanned 3,800 feet, but it was a 250-foot section that fell while while heavy traffic was crossing over it. The bridge, known as the Ponte Morandi, or the Morandi Bridge, had four steel cables that extended from each of its supporting towers. And these cables were encased in concrete. This type of bridge was known as a cable-stayed bridge. And because of its design, was supposedly stronger and lighter than any other bridge of that era. What people didn't know was that the nearby industrial factories were emitting corrosive chemicals into the air that were causing, was causing the concrete sheathing to break down and allowing the salt air in the water to seep in to the steel cables. And corrosion had begun to, de- to, to develop, and it was compromising some of the cables that was beneath the concrete sheathing. Of course, all bridges are inspected for damage and safety, but the concrete sheathing around those steel cables made it very difficult to know how much corrosion was affecting the cables. It also made it very difficult, if they found it, to be able to fix it. So on the morning of August the 14th, as heavy traffic is passing along the bridge, one of the compromised cables by the corrosion gave way, and the three remaining cables couldn't sustain the additional weight causing that section of the bridge to collapse. It's like a plane crash or these other disasters that happen. We're always studying them, and we learned, you know, the bridges today have dozens, even hundreds of steel cables supporting the different sections of a bridge, meaning that if a single cable breaks, the others can sustain the extra weight. Now, Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, there can be a few of us holding the weight of what we're doing in the cause of missions. And if the weight gets too heavy, something affects us, it may cause us to give way. But what happens if all of us wrap ourselves around each other like steel cables wrapped around one another and multiple steel cables together participating The result is that we make the entire effort stronger as a result. We make it stronger. So that in a similar way, the more people we have joining us in our Faith Promise Missions effort, it's like adding additional steel cables that further secures the effort of bridging a great expanse so that the gospel can go to the uttermost parts of the world. We need every one of you to join us. We gave you a card last week. You give you a card this week. You can do this online for those of you who are watching us. To say, Pastor, I want to make a faith promise. I want to be one of those steel cables joining all of the others to hold up that gospel bridge of opportunity, carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. I want to be one of those 
and you take that card and you say, I'm going to trust God every week to supply to me X number of dollars per week, bi-weekly, monthly, maybe on a quarterly basis. We have it broke down for a week and month. You can write the additional thought on it if you wish to do so and to say, we want to join you in this effort. Wouldn't it be great if a church on a ridge in a little city in the foothills of the West Virginia mountains along the Ohio River could reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you are about to go to lunch. You're going to complain about the booth. It's too narrow. The seat's torn. The food's overcooked. The dessert wasn't any good. The ice was melted in the drink. And the waitress or waiter wasn't very friendly. And the price was too high. There are men and women waking up today. They have no idea where they're going to spend eternity. And God left the mission of carrying the gospel across the street and around the world to his church. Hey, benevolence ministries and benevolence causes, they can, they can do that. They, they can feed people. They can put clothes on people's backs. They can help them with housing. They can, they can do that. The one thing they can't do is offer them the gospel. That's the job of the church. To get the gospel as far as we can get it. And I hope to die trying to get the gospel to as many people as we can get it.